Hi, everybody. I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton. And every now and then, we all need a shot in the arm, a nudge to remind us that life is short, that we need to get up, get out, and live it while we have the chance. That attitude and this radio program are called Growing Bolder. And over the next hour, you'll hear some inspiring stories from some incredible people who've all found a way to get off the couch and get into lives of passion and lives of purpose, the kind of stories that will lead you to believe that Yeah, you can do it, too. And here's some of what you will hear on today's program. We'll talk with one of the best-loved action-adventure authors today. We'll find out why a woman set out on a walk that took her three years to complete. We'll talk to the son of movie legend Audrey Hepburn about what he's doing to fight for one of her dearest causes. We're going to take you to a birthday party for a 100-year-old, and we'll get some great financial advice for retirement from one of the very best. Amazing people, inspiring stories. This is Growing Boulder. Baby boomers have the lowest rate of poverty of any age group, but you know what? They also have the highest rate of anxiety about their finances because most are underinformed and an awful lot of us flat out refuse to even want to deal with it. Don't like to talk about it because it can be intimidating, confusing, and like me, overwhelming. Yeah, in addition to that, Bill, the, the clock is ticking. I think that's a big part of it as well. Our next guest is a former leader in the banking industry. He owned his own mortgage company. He was overwhelmed by how many clients had little to no control over their own financial lives. And when he met nationally known financial advisor Dave Ramsey. Everything changed for him, and now he too spends his life helping people get put on the right track toward financial security. Let's see what advice he has to share today as we welcome Chris Hogan. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm fantastic, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. You know, this this, this Dave Ramsey guy has become <laughs> a bit of a cultural phenomenon. Uh, what's it like to work for him, and, and, and what was it like when you met him and decided this was for you? Well, I can tell you, Dave is definitely a very passionate individual who's focused on helping families really find their their way, how to understand how this money thing works. And I enjoy working with him. It's incredible to be a part of a, a team that's focused on bringing people hope. And that's one of the things that really resounded in my life for my wife and I when we got plugged into Dave's plan and in this message. And so I'm excited to further the message and to help other people feel the kind of freedom that I feel. Now, Chris, did you agree with with us at the beginning talking about how shocking it is, how little we take charge of our own financial situation, how little we really understand it, and most of all, how afraid we are to ask? Well, I I would agree with you 100%. When it comes to areas of finances, a lot of people are intimidated and they're scared. Uh, and, And unfortunately, a lot of people will result in just staying in the dark. Like, they won't seek out that guidance or the information to truly help them understand how it works. And so one of the things that I figured out and I've seen is that, you know, winning with money is 20% head knowledge and it's 80% behavior. So people just need to have the courage to ask, to plug into the right information, and to get information that truly works. And that's what we do here. You know, Chris, we like to say on this program, uh, because we talk to a demographic of people that that want to believe anything is possible, that it is never too late. But but is that accurate when it comes to preparing for retirement? We had Susie Orman on this program not long ago, and she said she used to think the same thing, but sadly she now believes that it is too late for some of us. Do you feel the same way? Well, I don't think it's ever too late. Uh, I think we all have inherent dreams inside of us, these things that we want to strive for. Now, based on age, the dream may have to take some different shapes. Uh, it may look a little bit differently. But I think it's imperative for us to always know that better is available. And it starts with our daily actions. And so, no, it's not too late for people. Some people, that dream may have to take a different shape, and they may have to work a little bit longer and, and understand what they can sacrifice. But better is still available, and that's what I want people to understand. So, so how, what, do we, what do we do to manifest that, Chris? Do we go to some financial planner? And, and if you've got real problems and very little money, won't most financial planners turn you away? Well, I think the first thing that people need to do is plug into the right kind of information. That's where it's not only giving them guidance, but it's giving them a step-by-step process. 
And that's what I love about Financial Peace University and Dave's information with the seven baby steps is that it gives people a plan that they can begin to plug into and move forward. Now, and as far as sitting down with a financial advisor, you know, that's going to depend on the individual. Uh, I would encourage everyone to at least sit down and have a conversation. You know, don't be ashamed or, or, or feel bad about how much you have saved up, but you want to get the right kind of guidance. And so I want people to sit down with an investment professional that has the heart of a teacher. And what I mean by that is somebody that's looking to help you, not trying to sell you some stuff. And so I want to encourage people, sit down, get out your 401k statements or 403b statements, and you and your spouse, go sit down with that professional, talk with them about where you are and where you want to go. We're talking with Chris Hogan, who works with Dave Ramsey, and and I don't think there's any of us that have not had Dave Ramsey's name come up in a conversation with our friends, relatives, or acquaintances in the last year. It really is phenomenal how he has exploded onto the scene. Chris, how would you describe what you do with Dave? Are you his right-hand guy? Uh, Do you do the interviews with the the really big radio programs like Growing Boulder, and he just does the littler ones? (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Well, I tell you what, I'm definitely a part of the team. Uh, I'm one of the Ramsey personalities. There are four of us here that travel all around the country speaking. Um, I have a great opportunity to travel with Dave, and we're doing a smart money tour right now where we're traveling around teaching people how do you win with money? What are the steps you have to take? And then we're also doing a leadership event uh, around the country as well. So it is definitely an honor to be you know, teamed up with Dave, but it's more about helping people. I want people to understand that hope is available, better is available, but you just have to plug into a plan, and you've got to understand that, that results come from work. And I want to help people work, more, work better and smarter toward their goals. You know, one way maybe, Chris, you know, far be it for me to say, but if you could only develop some kind of a tool that could help us plan for our retirement, I think that would make things a lot easier. Well, you know what, my friend? I have developed a tool. What? Uh, It's called the Retire Inspired Quotient. And literally what this birthed from was that I was hearing a lot of people asking about retirement, and they wanted to know, what's the big number? How much am I going to need? And so I sat down with our team here uh, of our web individuals and developers, and I began to kind of talk out my dream, kind of what I was looking for. And lo and behold, they were able to put this thing together to help people plug in just a few key pieces of information and begin to understand exactly what they're going to need so they, too, can retire inspired. Do you have a uh, an average client, Chris, uh, you and Dave? I mean, Bill and I talk a lot to people. This baby boomer demographic that, that we pretty much attack and target is huge. It's as diverse as any group. Uh, as Bill mentioned, there, there's really more uh, wealth in this group but also more poverty than, than almost in any group. And, and it seems like the closer we get to retirement, uh, our needs are much different than the younger portion of the baby boomer uh, market. What do you say to people that are nearing retirement that don't feel like they have enough in order to live the way they want to? Well, I would agree with you with the baby boomers. They're, I call them, they're feeling the, the crunch like the sandwich generation. Uh, they have kids that they've sent out that may be boomeranging and coming back, but then they're also feeling the financial pressure from parents that are aging. And so the baby boomer is really full in this push from both sides. And so as I meet with these individuals and I sit down and I talk with them or I'm presenting from stage, one of the things I want them to understand is that they have to take responsibility for their retirement. They've got to begin to truly understand where they are right now and then where do they want to be. Now, I don't mean that saying that they're going to be able to blink their eyes and suddenly get there, but it's a lot easier to start to work north and take steps in the direction of north when I know where north is. And so for those individuals, I would tell them to get a reality check of where they are, uh, start to understand the sacrifices and the cutbacks that they can make today, and that's like eating out and obviously attacking debt and getting it out of your life, and then try to figure out what are some ways that you can bring in extra income. Uh, Can you do a yard sale? Can you sell some stuff? Maybe you have a talent or skill that you could do a side business for to generate extra income and divert that totally toward retirement. And so regardless of an individual's financial status or their predicament, I always want to be able to point them in a direction where they can begin to make positive changes. And you you mentioned there, Chris, I think the one word that derails more people than anything, and it's the D word, it's debt. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, We have grown in this culture to consume a lot. And one of the things I explain to people is that, see, if you're paying debt, you're also being charged interest. 
And when you people begin to identify that and they look and they understand that if I'm paying interest, then I'm being penalized. But if I'm gaining interest in my savings account or in my, in my money market account or my investments, I'm being rewarded. And I think the, the, the line is drawn in the sand right there for people to understand that debt is not your friend. Debt charges you interest, so it's an enemy. It's actually stealing from your number one wealth-building tool, and that's your income. So if we can reclaim our income back and stop servicing debt by getting out of debt, now you can begin to build and fuel your dreams toward retirement. Chris, you've seen people in all sorts of situations, from great to desperate. Can you leave us with a, a, a takeaway? Is it possible? Is it as hard as it seems? Well, I would tell your listeners out there that are listening that regardless of where they are right now, I want them to know that better is available. But what they have to do is be honest with themselves. Be absolutely clear about where you are right now, and then be absolutely certain of what it is that you want. And more importantly, who is it you want it for? You see, a lot of us, when we tap into the motivation, when we understand it's our kids or our grandkids that we love and we want to provide for, we'll start to do the things that are necessary. We'll start to see possibilities when maybe we've never seen it before. But more importantly, they have to plug into a plan that works. And so I would encourage them to get information, sit down, look at where they are, and take steps in the right direction. I guess the key is not being afraid to have the conversation. As you said, sit down and get the, get the thing started. It really is. And, and the best place to start the conversation is if you're married, is with your spouse. You see, we lo- we've lost the ability to really dream because we've had some reality happen. You know, you've maybe had to deal with a, a job or a frustrating job loss or maybe even some kids, and we've lost that connection with our spouse about the dream. And so that's one of the steps in my tool on the RIQ is to actually sit down with your spouse and dream about retirement. What is it that you'd like to do? What are the things you want to travel? Do you want to start another business? Do you want to do mission work? Whatever it is, but talk to your spouse about that dream because, see, when you do that, now both of you are able to understand where you're coming from, and then you can start to move in the direction of where you want to go. And married couples are much more successful when they're working in unison instead of battling each other. There you go, folks. A little homework from Chris Hogan to get our finances in order. If you'd like more advice and more information, check him out. Chris Hogan. 360.com. Great, great news, and let's get our house in order. Up next, we'll meet Dorothy Turner Johnson, sharp as a tack, making a difference, and she just turned 100 years old. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingboulder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. You're listening to Growing Boulder Radio with Mark and Bill. It's time now for our surviving and thriving feature story. Yeah, and this is the truth, folks. There really is no greater curse than living a long life if that long life is filled with pain and disease. But there's no greater blessing if it's filled with vitality and curiosity and health. You're about to hear just how great life can be, not just when you're 70 or 80, but when you happen to be 100 years old. Look at the balloons. Oh, my God. (laughs) There's about to be a big party for a very special occasion. I think it's because I have reached my 100th birthday. Yes, Dorothy Turner Johnson has a lot to celebrate. This woman has lived a very long life by making a difference, even from the beginning. Growing up in an era where minorities seldom went to school, she did, inspired by her father's passion for teaching. Very often... The children that he taught had no schooling because they had to be available to their families to, to work in the fields and harvest. 
but she did. She even went to college, graduating from the University of Wisconsin. And when war broke out, she was on the front lines of fighting racism and breaking racial and gender barriers. She was one of the first women, one of the early African-American women to serve, and one of the first um, African-American women to serve overseas. She joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, where she was tasked to solve a major problem, a backlog of seven million letters sent to soldiers on the front lines. And it was our job to try to find where these uh, military personnel uh, were so we could uh, um, send that mail on to them. And that's what we did. After the war, she used those organizational skills to excel as a librarian and an educator. And where many believe the secret to longevity is in what you eat, Dorothy says a well-lived life comes from what you do. You know, this is a great world that we live in. And everybody who lives in this world uh, takes something from it and should uh, add something to it. And uh, if we become aware of that responsibility, it enriches, it enriches our lives, enriches our souls, really. So I think that's part of the whole thing. Her life has been one of tolerance, acceptance, and insistence on being involved in her community, reaching out to others, and striving to make things better for all. You know, I think almost everything that surrounds us has an impact on what our lives would become our relationship with other people, our interest in what their opinions are. They may not be our opinions, but they are opinions that exist. It's one of the reasons her many friends keep showing up, not just to celebrate her, but to learn from her. (laughs) Her famous quote for me is, there's something good about just showing up. And so when I look at the places where she shows up, I see the good in her life. I see her showing up at the opera. I see her showing up at the plays. I see her showing up as a volunteer at Celebration School. I see her showing up and uh, forming what, what is the first library in Celebration. I see her showing up supporting her friends and her family whenever it's needed. So I agree with her. There is something good about showing up. And maybe it's because she showed up at good places at the right time that she's here with us now. Our honorable birthday girl, Dorothy Turner Johnson. Dorothy Turner Johnson sums it up best herself. For her, turning 100 has been... Overwhelming. It's just been surprising and overwhelming. And it's so wonderful uh, to have all these people. Sh- I didn't know I had all these friends, you know? And it's wonderful to have friends, isn't it? Now, how cool is that a birthday party for someone turning 100 and not in some nursing home, but in a clubhouse where the guest of honor walked in on her own. She was able to greet her friends and have a great time. And Mark, do you know how she gets around her community? She's got a three-wheeled bike that she rides every day, physically active, mentally sharp, and actively involved in life. I can see that. I was going to say maybe she floats around on her enthusiasm because, oh my gosh, does she have a lot of that. And here's why it's important for all of us to think about her life and what she's accomplished. The number of people 85 and older is now growing four times faster than any other age category. And in the last 30 years, the number of centenarians has increased 65%. And that means that everyone listening to this show right now has a greater chance at living to 100 than any other generation in the history of humanity. Of course, it's not a given. It's an opportunity. And if you do make it that long, the condition you're in will be determined in large part by the choices you're making today. So folks, live long and live well. Up next, the son of Audrey Hepburn and what he's doing to protect her legacy. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... 
The Center for Health and Well-Being now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. The more we value experience, the more interested we become in travel. A large survey of people over 50 asked about regrets, and 56% of all responders said they would travel extensively if they had 30 extra years. Newsflash, most of us do have an extra 30 years. Travel is the perfect jump starter for what's next. It gives us perspective, provides us inspiration, and increases our empathy and compassion. It charges our physical, emotional, spiritual, and creative batteries, and it helps us think outside the box. And don't think you're too old to travel. The fastest growing segment of the travel market consists of those over 85. Older travelers now dominate the travel industry, and increasingly, we're not simply sightseers. We absorb the culture, the history, the food, the geography, and the people of wherever we go. Adventure travel is booming thanks in part to new technology, which diminishes the perception of risk that has kept many older people at home. A satellite phone or even a cell phone and a decent travel insurance policy make the idea of hiking a remote wilderness trail in a foreign country far less frightening. If anything does go wrong, you can be airlifted out of just about anywhere in a matter of hours. The world's a big place. What are you waiting for? I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. You know, if you are unlucky enough to be diagnosed with, say, lung or breast or prostate cancer, as devastating as that would be, there is an army of treatment centers, support organizations, and information groups that are out there. They're ready and willing to help you through almost every aspect. But if you end up with something else, something rare, for instance, something like pseudomyxoma adenocarcinoma, well, then your experience would be totally different. Man, that is a mouthful. It yeah. seems like the rare ones always have the long names. Pseudomyxoma is the rare form of cancer that actually took the life of one of the greatest actors of all time and most beloved humanitarians of all time, Audrey Hepburn. And as part of her already incredible legacy, her son is now working hard to try to raise awareness for the many others out there that are battling rare diseases. In fact, he is now serving as the rare diseases ambassador. Let's say hello to Sean Hepburn Ferrer. Sean, how are you this morning? I am good. Thank you so much for asking. Good morning, Mark and Bill. You know, you are good, and maybe not in the sense that you just implied. We so greatly appreciate what you're doing. I don't know whether you know it, but uh, Bill and I also have a show called Surviving and Thriving, which is all about people trying to overcome serious illnesses. And what you are doing is such a great service. Uh, And in truth, there really is nothing rare about getting a rare disease, because when you put them all together, what is it, one in 10 in this country will actually get them? Why don't we hear more about that? One in 10 Americans are living today with a rare disease. A rare disease is something that affects uh, less than 200,000 Americans. And, and, but if you put the numbers together, 7,000 rare diseases, that gives some amazing numbers. You know, 30 million people living with a, condi- a condition, and yet only 400 FDA-approved treatments. Uh, organizations like Nord are magical and have turned around the loneliness that we felt as a family 22 years ago when our mother became ill. Um, and, and today unite uh, patients, uh, their caregivers, their families who must not be forgotten, you know, research centers, databases, and have ma- made literally single-handedly this loneliness a thing of the past. So, so I believe that your mom, Audrey Hepburn, was having bad stomach pains, and that's how it started. She went to doctors and specialists. Yeah, and, and, and she had a first, uh, uh, they, they looked into it in Switzerland at first, and then she did an, an, an endoscopy. Uh, but the primary was in the appendix, and that corner is way too sharp for those cameras to look into it, on top of which PMP, uh, pseudomyxoma peritonee, 
or adenocarcinoma, as it was known at the time, is not a type of cancer that grows uh, with a tumor mass. It sort of sprinkles the entire cavity and starts to turn the tissues into gelatin. So it's uh, actually familiarly known as jelly belly. And, um, and so, you know, uh, unfortunately, there was very little we could do at the time. Uh, and I'm glad to announce that today uh, results, both medical uh, and the prognosis for people suffering with this diseases have increased tremendously. And, and obviously, Sean, it all begins with awareness, but I mean, it, it ends. It's all about money. And, and I think that every rare disease out there has a champion of some sort, and, and usually it's, it's the parent or the spouse of someone who had that. How, how does this work? How does your ambassadorship work? Because I imagine a lot of people aren't ready to donate to a rare disease they never heard of, but they understand that when you put these together, there are these thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that need help. Are you trying to raise money uh, broadly? Uh, and then distribute it uh, specifically? Well, fortunately, it's not all about money. And here's the most important thing I've learned over the past two years uh, since I became ambassador. Technology today is making the way we treat regular diseases more and more targeted uh, due to the advent of uh, uh, genetics and, and, and the type of treatment, the way we treat each patient, we're taking into consideration the patient themselves. So what does this mean? It means that we're starting to treat regular diseases as rare diseases. And with time, I believe that those two paths will get even closer and maybe even superimpose. And I think so what we're learning today through the research uh, 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 correlated to rare diseases, through the ability to create orphan drugs, you know, some of these uh, diseases don't even have enough patients to go through a regular FDA uh, research program, so they're accelerated through the program and they become these orphan drugs. So everything that we're learning about rare diseases is going to be useful to us in the future in treating regular diseases. It sounds very futuristic, but it is actually happening right now. So, Sean, what can we do? What can all of us listening do to either participate in Rare Disease Day or to make a difference all year long for you? Um, you can visit the rarediseaseday.us site, learn about it. Uh, I think it all starts in the mind, that, you know, how we perceive uh, someone living with a rare disease. And to that note, I, um, before I was even asked to become an ambassador, I wrote a little children's book called Mauricio of Uruguay. It, it celebrates the life of a man who lived with a particular condition called McCune-Albright, uh, sort of think of him in terms of the elephant man of the 21st century, and yet he lived a full and complete life both as a person and as an artist. Uh, the book is available on Lulu.com. Uh, all of the proceeds go to Nord and its European counter counterpart. Uh, there's a soft cover and a hard cover. And, and so it starts in the mind and the way we perceive it, and we have to, you know, just like my mother believed that every life is precious, uh, uh, it, it, it applies to the situation with rare diseases as well. You know, these are mostly, more than 50% are genetics, which means more than 50% are affecting children, and that's what makes them so important. So as a whole, rare disease should be considered just as any other major disease, heart disease, cancer, and so forth. The fact that they're able to se separate them in, and categorize them more efficiently than we've been able to categorize and separate cancer does not mean that they should be treated as something outside of our periphery. Sean, you mentioned your mother, and folks, if you just joined us, he is Sean Hepburn Ferrer, uh, the son of the great Audrey Hepburn. What would your mom think of what you're doing today? Um, I think she would feel good about it. She would feel good that we talk about children. I think if she'd had a few more minutes on this planet after hugging us and making sure that we were okay, she would talk about the need not for uh, a collective guilt, but for collective responsibility. You know, uh, the UN and UNICEF were created after World War II to guarantee that the Holocaust wouldn't happen again, that a world war would never happen again, and yet we see microcosms of that reality taking place today, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, uh, and obviously all you have to do is turn on the news and see that many of the issues that she warned against 25 years ago, lack of education, uh, lack of support in certain countries, have, have really come home to roost. And I think that 
the opportunity is always there, but we live in a world today where we have to become active participants uh, and addressing these issues. And Sean, in our last uh, 15 or 20 seconds, we can probably wrap this up with one of her best-known quotes when she said, we cannot save everyone, but the knowledge that someone is coming to the rescue, that we care as a society, is ultimately as important. Absolutely. And she used to quote Helen Keller often saying, uh, alone there is so little we can do, but together we can do so much. And that really ties in to this year's uh, Rare Disease Day uh, motto, Uh, which is, uh, alone we are rare, but together we are strong. Uh, A a lending hand, you know, is really where it all begins. It begins in your heart and in your mind, understanding the rest of it will happen naturally. Well, you're a lot more than an ambassador. It's easy to hear the passion in your voice and the dedication in your heart as well. Folks, for more information, be sure to go to the website, rarediseaseday.org or rarediseaseday.us. Let people know that we do care. Sean Hepburn Ferrer, thanks for all the great work you're doing. Up next, a segment for anyone who likes to take walks. Only this woman's last walk crossed three continents and took three years. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, This is Growing Boulder with Mark and Bill, and our next guest sums herself up in one simple sentence. She says, I was born with two legs, so I decided to use them. She's a native of Switzerland, and she may have used her legs more than anybody else on earth. And I guess if you had to give her a title, you would call her an extreme walker, but she's definitely an adventurer and absolutely an explorer. Yeah, very inspiring. She's now in her 40s, and she's been doing what she does for over 20 years now. In fact, she just got back from one of her walks, and this one took her across three Three continents from Siberia through Mongolia to China, all the way to Australia. And get this, folks, it took her three years to get it done. It got her the honor also of being named National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year, which is a very prestigious honor. Yet she says it's really not about the walking, it's what she's learned about life and our connection to the planet that drives her. She is Sarah Marquis, Sarah Mar- Marquis, Marquis. Uh, She'll correct me if I'm wrong. Let's find out as we talk to her from Switzerland. Sarah, how are you? Really good. Hello, guys. How are you doing? We're doing great. Pronounce your last name for me so I don't blow that again, will you? Well, Marquis is fine. Marquis. Okay, great. Yeah, You know, I I think to some extent all human beings are are wired... uh, you know, for adventure, where we have the urge to explore a little bit, but you certainly have taken it well beyond that. When did this urge take hold of you? Well, that's we, we have to start really early in my life where I was this really wild kid. Uh, I grew up in the countryside here in the northern part of Switzerland, and naturally, I was really close to the nature. Uh, and I start to explore myself, you know, like going away and uh, and always alone. So I was always this wild kid pushing boundary all the time. And when I was really little, I was seven or eight, I don't remember, I ended up in a cave with my dog overnight. Everybody was looking after me and, uh, you know, <laughs> the police, my mom, everybody. <laughs> so it's, it's, it was really who I was at that time. And I decided to follow my heart and... All matter for me was I wanted to explore, you know, it, it's exploration, it's in, inner exploration and outside. It doesn't go only in one way. So that's what I did. So, Sarah, like Mark says, all of us up to this point would say, yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. I feel the same way. But something happened with you because when you're 17, you get this urge to explore Turkey and you go clear across the country. Then you go on a 17-month 
walk through Australia. This is like, this is way over the top. <laughs> you know, as my mom say, well, it's a little too far, darling. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, uh, every expedition starts with a, a thinking. Like for this expedition, the 17 months one, I had this idea of, thinking as a white female, could I survive those desertic area and can I survive off the land? That was my, we all supposed to survive off the land. We all supposed to be built for that. But I wanted to know. And I did actually, <laughs> I did walk all that way and I survived off the land. I've been starving like hell. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I experienced all those up and down and and the difficulty of catching my food and, and learning the hard way, really. Yeah, I, I think we're only about 500,000 years removed from being hunter-gatherers, Sarah. Uh, do we still have that instinct? Did you find out that you, 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 you instinctively knew more than you thought you did about survival? Yeah, well, I understand. And in one point, I needed to shed my human life, the one that I know, the one that I knew, uh, uh, the one that I've been born with, you know, I knew that I needed to shed that and leave it there. And I needed to use the rest, the instincts, the smells, the senses that we had. And that's what I did. And this this shift from be who you are and be the animals inside you, it's actually painful. But once you find the tools to actually work those senses really sharply, uh, it's actually really fun. You know, Mark, when I when I was looking forward to talking to Sarah, you know what was really interesting about her? She did not, like, read books on how to survive in the wild. Do you know what she did? She said the way to do it was to watch the animals and try to copy the animals. And, and Sarah, you also said that something really interesting, existential almost, happens when you're out all by yourself for something like six months. Yeah, it takes a long time. It takes really long time to be able to actually feel one with nature. And for that was from that was from my last trip when I walked from Siberia to Australia. Um the first six months been like hell, like being in the wash machine, it's it takes forever to my body get that just to the temperature, to the walking for to the night, to sleep at night in a tent day after day and the condition that I had. And suddenly one day I just wake up and I feel good. I didn't feel the pain anymore. And I, I feel one with nature. It's really hard to explain. It's, it's just you become nature. It's a, it's, it's a magical moment and takes, it takes a long time, a lot of energy and a lot of steps. But I would never, never go back uh, uh, saying that was too hard. Like that was everything was worth it to get to that point, really. We're talking with Sarah Marquise, who uh, we're talking to her from her home in Switzerland. She's been named the National Geographic Adventurer of the Year uh, because she takes these long walks, three years and more, across many continents. And and, and Sarah, I, I think surviving, dealing with the planet, with the animals is one thing. Surviving humankind can be a lot more challenging. I think a lot of us have the impression that you've walked into some pretty potentially dangerous areas. What have you learned about humans in general? Uh, from your walks well avoid them <laughs> well it's been really a difficult journey as a as a white female through those country you know um i before i head off in my expedition i really studied the uh, the culture in every country like for instance i knew that in china be a, a single female who could be taken the wrong way uh, a single female is usually a prostitute in that country. Um, so I've been really careful to look like a man most of the time and hiding myself. And, and, but sometimes it was not enough and I get attacked by, by the locals. Kids throw me stones in China. I had those weird meetings in the, in the jungle in, the, in Laos where I was in a wrong spot in the middle of the, the jungle and I had those... Um, I, those traffic 
drug trafficker punching me with his automatic gun during the night and that goes on and on and uh, it's always been uh, the problem always come from the human unfortunately i'm sure there was a downside to your adventures as well that we could talk about at some point but if you could give us like a a one sentence or two sentence takeaway sarah what have you learned what can we learn from your experiences out in the wild all alone well I had, regarding human, I, that those really hard meetings teach me a lot, uh, but also teach me that the woman recognize me as a woman, and they always try to feed me wherever culture they were in, wherever language they were, they were speaking, and they always recognize me and sneak up uh, like a bowl of rice here and there. And it's like this invisible link between women. And that's, that was the, the really upside of all these hush meetings with men. Then I was part of that woman tribe wherever I was. And folks, this is just the tip of the iceberg of these incredible adventures this woman has been on. And you can learn more about them and her revelations about life at Sarah Marquis, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S, Dot ch. I know she's got more adventures to come, and you're going to want to go right there with her. Thanks so much, Sarah, and best of luck to you. Up next, one of America's most prolific and best-loved action-adventure authors on his incredible life. This is Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And you know, when you have something to say, you write. And our next guest must have a lot to say. He's the author or co-author of over 50 books, and he's one of those rare writers whose nonfiction is just as fascinating and spellbinding as his fiction. Yeah, not only is he a great and prolific writer, this guy's kind of a combination of Sean Connery and Indiana Jones. He's got an incredible collection of over 100 rare and highly sought-after classic cars. Plus, he's the founder of the Sea Hunters, where he and his crew of volunteers have searched for and discovered more than 60 lost sunken ships of historic significance. And if you've ever read a Dirk Pitt, the Numa Files, the Oregon Files, the Isaac Bell Adventures, or the Fargo Adventures, and who really hasn't, you're very familiar with the great Clive Cussler. Clive, are you there? <laughs> I don't know how great I am. <laughs> oh, man. you Hey, listen, we're, we're big fans. Uh, uh, let's talk about your career, because over 40 years as a writer, uh, is storytelling still the same now as it used to be? Is the industry still the same? What kind of changes have you seen? I haven't seen, uh, well, I've seen more changes when I, uh, in adventure. When I started out, uh, nobody wanted to publish me because they said adventure doesn't sell. <laughs> Somebody said that don't get your hopes up, nothing will ever come of it. But uh, it's the adventure. I think now we've got quite a few adventure writers, and they're all turning out some very excellent stories. But in the beginning, you know, it's, it was just like the mystery of, you know, the detective in New York. So, like with Isaac Bell, it's fun to have one that's, you know, like in the early 1900s that goes through this Frisco quake and, you know, drives an old red locomobile and, you know, fun like that. So. Hey, listen, you brought Isaac Bell up, and I know your latest book is another uh, Isaac Bell novel called The Assassin with a storyline, Clive. So interesting. So historically believable that sometimes it's hard to tell your novels from your nonfiction. I've heard that. Yeah, it's um, we've tried to uh, take eras where they had things like the uh, uh, the railroad, you know, fights and uh, the car, the uh, Morgan and, and uh, the rest of them, and then we get into the the coal strikes in one one era, 
and then another one you know, is the German spy and um, whatever they had in those days. This one has to do with you know the oil fights between the uh, uh, you know the, the, the spikers and 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 Rockefeller who you know would buy them out and and so on. So, but it's it's just it's it's an interesting part of the. Uh, uh, you know the American uh, epic, and it's it's just so much fun to write about it. And so many people are amazed that when they they read the the historic part of it, they're, they're just surprised. So many of these things took place. Clive, I love to hear you say it's so much fun to write about it because, uh, you know, I think a lot of writers are just out there cranking it out, you know, and it's it's, it's a chore. It's a job. They they, they got to make their publishing deadlines. You're now in your 80s, obviously as curious, as interested, as engaged uh, as ever. I mean, you've got to do serious research to write what you write. What are your thoughts about aging? Are you, uh, Do you like being 83? <laughs> I'm trying to fight it the best I can. Uh, no, I, I, I just, my joints don't work like they used to, but as far as everything else, I still dive, have fun. And, and uh, but uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's just physically, you know, got, you've got a few problems, but mentally you're still pretty good. I just like the research. That's the very fun part, writing a book. I always love the research and then the writing. That was, that was work. And, and I'm guessing, Clive, there's something else that keeps you going that you really like. As we mentioned, the Dirk Pitt adventures, you named the character after your son when he was really, really young. And something very cool about that is now you co-write with your son, and his son, your grandson, is also writing. <laughs> Somewhat, yeah. No, it's uh, it was um, my, my son was he he he, he was. Uh, Went to UCLA and got his uh, MBA, and, and uh, uh, so. But he was for 13 years as a financial analyst with Motorola, but he just couldn't take it anymore. So I said, "Why don't you write a Dirk Pitt book?" And he said, "Oh, I couldn't do that." And I said, "You've read the ball. You know, I'll help you, and we'll just take off." Well, he did a great job on the first one, and he's now he's pretty much on his own as far as the rest of them. I still work on the plots, but he'll do most of the writing. We're talking with the great writer Clive Cussler. And Clive, your, your your stories are so rich in details, your characters so well developed that it's impossible not to actually see them. Uh, but we rarely see your work on the screen. I've read you're not a big fan of Hollywood. <laughs> no, let's see. The first movie they made was Raise the Titanic, and it was kind of a bomb. I remember Lord Lou Grade, the producer, said it would have been cheaper for him to lower the Atlantic and then raise the Titanic. <laughs> and uh, then the next one with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Sahara, that um, it was entertaining, but it, <laughs> it didn't have much to do with the book. And, you know, Clive, Mark mentioned that you're in your early 80s now. Do you think about retirement? Is that something that's uh, hanging out there for you? They won't let me. I mean, <laughs> Nobody will let me retire. I have to keep going. It's always been a joke of mine that someday they'll find this behind all these old manuscripts, you know, dusty and an old skeleton and, and uh, you know, buried under all these manuscripts and cobwebs. And that'll be me. So. You know, Clive, Bill was telling me before this interview about your car collection. I didn't know you were such an avid collector. And, and would you mind sharing with me what you think is the greatest American car ever produced? Well, I mean, what, what do you covet? What do you love? The Duesenberg. The Duesenberg was probably the finest car ever, ever one of the finest cars ever built anywhere around the world. And certainly I... For an American, you know, car, it was the most luxurious thing that's ever been built. Is that a 30s, 1930s? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, about 30 up to about 36. You know, a lot of great things uh, started in the 30s, like Clive Cussler himself. So, Clive, what, what's the takeaway? What can we learn from your experience? What can you tell us, since you're so great at developing characters that connect and communicate with people, what would you tell us that life is really all about? Oh, it's uh, always going out, I guess, and, and looking for something new. 
I mean, if I travel, I, I don't usually go to the same place twice, but, you know, branch out and find somewhere, you know, that I've always wanted to go but never did. And uh, so I think that's, that's that, that would be it, just to just go out there and keep searching for whatever you want to look for, you know, whether it's animals or volcanoes or, you know, <laughs> anything in the jungle or the, under the sea. So that's that's basically it. It's like when somebody says, you know, where can I, should I go diving? Well, it's easy to say all the places in the Caribbean and the Pacific, but I always say, why don't you go up to Alaska and get a, you know a good wetsuit and dive up there because what you see nobody else has ever seen before. So, so it's great fun to to experiment like that. And I'll tell you, folks, one of the things that we love the most about Clive Cussler is many authors have this imaginary life that they create inside their room, and and that's the extent of things. But Clive is a combination of this great forethought, this great creativity, and actually going out and living life to the fullest. Do yourself a favor and dive into any of his books. You can find out more about them and this fascinating author by going to Clive hyphen Cussler hyphen books dot com. What a great interview with a great guy. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingboulder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire